Section sixty three of Man and Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Man and Wife by Wilkie Collins. Sixteenth Scene. Chapter the Fifty Fourth. Part Two. Nine. I have said that people, excepting my husband and my relations, were almost always good to me. The landlord of the house which we had taken when we were married heard of my sad case. He gave me one of his empty houses to look after, and a little weekly allowance for doing it. Some of the furniture in the upper rooms, not being wanted by the last tenant, was left to be taken at a valuation if the next tenant needed it. Two of the servants' bedrooms, in the attics, one next to the other, had all that was wanted in them. So I had a roof to cover me, and a choice of beds to lie in, and money to get me food. All well again, but all too late. If that house could speak, what tales that house would have to tell of me. I had been told by the doctors to exercise my speech. Being all alone, with nobody to speak to except when the landlord dropped in, or when the servant next door said, Nice day, ain't it? Or... Don't you feel lonely, or such like? I bought the newspaper, and read it out loud to myself, to exercise my speech in that way. One day I came upon a bit about the wives of drunken husbands. It was a report of something said on that subject by a London coroner, who had held inquests on dead husbands, in the lower ranks of life, and who had his reasons for suspecting the wives. Examination of the body, he said, didn't prove it and witnesses didn't prove it, but he thought it nevertheless quite possible, in some cases, that, when the woman could bear it no longer, she sometimes took a damp towel, and waited till the husband, drugged with his own liquor, was sunk in his sleep, and then put the towel over his nose and mouth, and ended it that way, without anybody being the wiser. I laid down the newspaper, and fell into thinking. My mind was, by this time, in a prophetic way, I said to myself, I haven't happened on this for nothing. This means that I shall see my husband again. It was then just after my dinner-time, two o'clock, that same night, at the moment when I had put out my candle and laid me down in bed, I heard a knock at the street door. Before I had lit my candle I says to myself, Here he is. I huddled on a few things and struck a light and went downstairs. I called out through the door, "'Who's there?' and his voice answered, "'Let me in.' I sat down on a chair in the passage, and shook all over like a person struck with palsy. Not from the fear of him, but from my mind being in the prophetic way. I knew I was going to be driven to it at last. Try as I might to keep from doing it, my mind told me I was to do it now. I sat shaking on the chair in the passage, I on one side of the door and he on the other. He knocked again, and again, and again. I knew it was useless to try, and yet I resolved to try. I determined not to let him in till I was forced to it. I determined to let him alarm the neighbourhood, and to see if the neighbourhood would step between us. I went upstairs and waited at the open staircase window over the door. The policeman came up, and the neighbours came out. They were all for giving him into custody. The policeman laid hands on him. 
He had but one word to say. He had only to point up to me at the window and to tell them I was his wife. The neighbors went indoors again. The policeman dropped hold of his arm. It was I who was in the wrong, and not he. I was bound to let my husband in. I went downstairs again and let him in. Nothing passed between us that night. I threw open the door of the bedroom next to mine and went and locked myself into my own room. He was dead beat with roaming the streets, without a penny in his pocket all day long. The bed to lie on was all he wanted for that night. The next morning I tried again, tried to turn back on the way that I was doomed to go, knowing beforehand that it would be of no use. I offered him three parts of my poor weekly earnings to be paid to him regularly at the landlord's office, if he would only keep away from me and from the house. He laughed in my face. As my husband, he could take all my earnings if he chose. And as for leaving the house, the house offered him free quarters to live in as long as I was employed to look after it. The landlord couldn't part man and wife. I said no more. Later in the day the landlord came. He said if we could make it out to live together peaceably, he had neither the right nor the wish to interfere. If we made any disturbances, then he should be obliged to provide himself with some other woman to look after the house. I had nowhere else to go, and no other employment to undertake. If, in spite of that, I had put on my bonnet and walked out, my husband would have walked out after me, and all decent people would have patted him on the back and said, "'Quite right, good man, quite right.' So there he was by his own act, and with the approval of others, in the same house with me. I made no remark to him or to the landlord. Nothing roused me now. I knew what was coming. I waited for the end. There was some change visible in me to others, as I suppose, though not noticeable by myself, which first surprised my husband, and then daunted him. When the next night came I heard him lock the door softly in his own room. It didn't matter to me. When the time was ripe, ten thousand locks wouldn't lock out what was to come. The next day, bringing my weekly payment, brought me a step nearer on the way to the end. Getting the money, he could get the drink. This time he began cunningly. In other words, he began his drinking by slow degrees. The landlord, bent, honest man, on trying to keep the peace between us, had given him some odd jobs to do, in the way of small repairs here and there about the house. "'You owe this,' he says, "'to my desire to do a good turn to your poor wife. I am helping you for her sake. Show yourself worthy to be helped if you can.' He said, as usual, that he was going to turn over a new leaf. Too late. The time had gone by. He was doomed, and I was doomed. It didn't matter what he said now. It didn't matter when he locked his door again the last thing at night. The next day was Sunday. Nothing happened. I went to chapel, mere habit. It did me no good. He got on a little with the drinking, but still cunningly, by slow degrees. I knew by experience that this meant a long fit, and a bad one, to come. Monday there were the odd jobs about the house to be begun. He was by this time just sober enough to do his work, and just tipsy enough to take a spiteful pleasure in persecuting his wife. He went out and got the things he wanted, and came back and called for me. A skilled workman like he was, he said, wanted a journeyman under him. 
there were things which it was beneath a skilled workman to do for himself. He was not going to call in a man or a boy and then have to pay them. He was going to get it done for nothing, and he meant to make a journeyman of me. Half tipsy and half sober, he went on talking like that, and laying out his things, all quite right, as he wanted them. When they were ready, he straightened himself up, and he gave me his orders what I was to do. I obeyed him to the best of my ability. Whatever he said and whatever he did, I knew he was going as straight as man could go to his own death by my hands. The rats and mice were all over the house, and the place generally was out of repair. He ought to have begun on the kitchen floor, but, having sentence pronounced against him, he began in the empty parlours on the ground floor. These parlours were separated by what is called a lath-and-plaster wall. The rats had damaged it. At one part they had gnawed through and spoiled the paper, at another part they had not got so far. The landlord's orders were to spare the paper, because he had some by him, to match it. My husband began at a place where the paper was whole. Under his directions I mixed up, I won't say what. With the help of it he got the paper loose from the wall without injuring it in any way, in a long hanging strip. Under it was the plaster and the laths, gnawed away in places by the rats. Though strictly a paper-hanger by trade, he could be plasterer too when he liked. I saw how he cut away the rotten laths and ripped off the plaster, and, under his directions again, I mixed up the new plaster he wanted, and handed him the new laths, and saw how he set them. I won't say a word about how this was done, either. I have a reason for keeping silence here, which is, to my mind, a very dreadful one. In everything that my husband made me do that day, he was showing me, blindfold, the way to kill him, so that no living soul, in the police or out of it, could suspect me of the deed. We finished the job on the wall just before dark. I went to my cup of tea, and he went to his bottle of gin. I left him, drinking hard, to put our two bedrooms tidy for the night. The place that his bed happened to be set in which I had never remarked particularly before, seemed, in a manner of speaking, to force itself on my notice now. The head of the bedstead was set against the wall which divided his room from mine. From looking at the bedstead I got to looking at the wall next, then to wondering what it was made of, then to rapping against it with my knuckles. The sound told me there was nothing but lath and plaster on that paper. It was the same as the wall we had been at work on downstairs. We had cleared our way so far through this last, in certain places where the repairs were most needed, that we had to be careful not to burst through the paper in the room on the other side. I found myself calling to mind the caution my husband had given me while we were at this part of the work, word for word as he had spoken it. "'Take care you don't find your hands in the next room.' That was what he had said down in the parlour. Up in his bedroom I kept on repeating it in my own mind, with my eyes all the while on the key, which he had moved to the inner side of the door to lock himself in, till the knowledge of what it meant burst on me like a flash of light. I looked at the wall, at the bedhead, at my own two hands, and I shivered as if it was winter time. Hours must have passed like minutes while I was upstairs that night. I lost all count of time. When my husband came up from his drinking, he found me in his room. 
10. I leave the rest untold and pass on purposely to the next morning. No mortal eyes but mine will ever see these lines. Still, there are things a woman can't write of, even to herself. I shall only say this. I suffer the last and worst of many indignities at my husband's hands, at the very time when I first saw, set plainly before me, the way to take his life. He went out toward noon next day to go his rounds among the public houses, my mind being then strung up to deliver him myself from him, for good and all, when he came back at night. The things we had used on the previous day were left in the parlour. I was all by myself in the house, free to put in practice the lesson he had taught me. I proved myself an apt scholar. Before the lamps were lit in the street, I had my own way prepared, in my bedroom and in his, for laying my own hands on him, after he had locked himself up for the night. I don't remember feeling either fear or doubt through all those hours. I sat down to my bit of supper with no better and no worse an appetite than usual. The only change in me that I can call to mind was that I felt a singular longing to have somebody with me, to keep me company. Having no friend to ask in, I went to the street door and stood looking at the people passing this way and that. A stray dog sniffing about came up to me. Generally I dislike dogs and beasts of all kinds. I called this one in and gave him his supper. He had been taught, I suppose, to sit up on his hind legs and beg for food. At any rate, that was his way of asking me for more. I laughed. It seems impossible when I look back at it now, but for all that it's true. I laughed till the tears ran down my cheeks at the little beast on his haunches with his ears pricked up and his head on one side and his mouth watering for the victuals. I wonder whether I was in my right senses. I don't know. When the dog had got all he could get, he whined to be let out to roam the streets again. As I opened the door to let the creature go his ways, I saw my husband crossing the road to come in. "'Keep out,' I says to him. "'Tonight of all nights, keep out.' He was too drunk to heed me. He passed by and blundered his way upstairs. I followed and listened. I heard him open his door and bang it to, and lock it. I waited a bit and went up another stair or two. I heard him drop down onto his bed. In a minute more he was fast asleep and snoring. It had all happened as it was wanted to happen. In two minutes, without doing one single thing to bring suspicion on myself, I could have smothered him. I went into my own room. I took the towel that I had laid ready. I was within an inch of it, and there came a rush of something up into my head. I can't say what it was. I can only say the horrors laid hold of me, and hunted me then and there out of the house. I put on my bonnet, and slipped the key of the street door into my pocket. It was only half-past nine, or maybe a quarter to ten. If I had any one clear notion in my head, it was the notion of running away, and never allowing myself to set eyes on the house of the husband more. I went up the street and came back. I went down the street and came back. I tried it a third time, and went round and round and round, and came back. It was not to be done. The house held me chained to it like a dog to his kennel. I couldn't keep away from it. For the life of me, I couldn't keep away from it.
A company of gay young men and women passed me, just as I was going to let myself in again. They were in a great hurry. "'Step out,' says one of the men. "'The theatre's close by, and we shall be just in time for the farce.' I turned about and followed them. Having been piously brought up, I had never been inside a theatre in my life. It struck me that I might get taken, as it were, out of myself, if I saw something that was quite strange to me, and heard something which would put new thoughts into my mind. They went into the pit, and I went in after them. The thing they called the farce had begun. Men and women came on to the stage, turn and turn about, and talked and went off again. Before long all the people about me in the pit were laughing and clapping their hands. The noise they made angered me. I don't know how to describe the state I was in. My eyes wouldn't serve me, and my ears wouldn't serve me, to see and to hear what the rest of them were seeing and hearing. There must have been something, I fancy, in my mind that got itself between me and what was going on upon the stage. The play looked fair enough on the surface, but there was danger and death at the bottom of it. The players were talking and laughing to deceive the people, with murder in their minds all the time. And nobody knew it but me, and my tongue was tied when I tried to tell the others. I got up and ran out. The moment I was in the street my steps turned back of themselves on the way to the house. I called a cab and told the man to drive as far as a shilling would take me the opposite way. He put me down, I don't know where. Across the street I saw an inscription in letters of flame over an open door. The man said it was a dancing place. Dancing was as new to me as play-going. I had one more shilling left, and I paid to go in and see what a sight of the dancing would do for me. The light from the ceiling poured down in this place as if it was all on fire. The crashing of the music was dreadful. The whirling round and round of men and women in each other's arms was quite maddening to see. I don't know what happened to me here. The great blaze of light from the ceiling turned blood-red on a sudden. The man standing in front of the musicians, waving a stick, took the likeness of Satan, as seen in the picture in our family Bible at home. The whirling men and women went round and round, with white faces like the faces of the dead, and bodies robed in winding-sheets. I screamed out with the terror of it, and some person took me by the arm and took me outside the door. The darkness did me good. It was comforting and delicious, like a cool hand laid on a hot head. I went walking on through it, without knowing where, composing my mind with the belief that I had lost my way, and that I should find myself miles distant from home when morning dawned. After some time I got too weary to go on, and I sat me down to rest on a doorstep. I dozed a bit and woke up. When I got on my feet to go on again, I happened to turn my head toward the door of the house. The number on it was the same number as on ours. I looked again, and behold, it was our steps I had been resting on. The door was our door. All my doubts and all my struggles dropped out of my mind when I made that discovery. There was no mistaking what this perpetual coming back to the house meant. Resist it as I might, it was to be. I opened the street door and went upstairs, and heard him sleeping his heavy sleep, exactly as I had heard him when I went out. I sat down on my bed and took off my bonnet, quite quiet in myself, because I knew it was to be. 
I damped the towel and put it ready, and took a turn in the room. It was just the dawn of day. The sparrows were chirping among the trees in the square hard by. I drew up my blind. The faint light spoke to me as if in words, Do it now, before I get brighter and show too much. I listened. The friendly silence had a word for me, too. Do it now, and trust the secret to me. I waited till the church clock chimed before striking the hour. At the first stroke, without touching the lock of his door, without setting foot in his room, I had the towel over his face. Before the last stroke he had ceased struggling. When the hum of the bell through the morning silence was still and dead, he was still and dead with it. 11. The rest of this history is counted in my mind by four days. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. After that it all fades off like, and the new years come with a strange look, being the years of a new life. What about the old life first? What did I feel in the horrid quiet of the morning when I had done it? I don't know what I felt. I can't remember it, or I can't tell it. I don't know which. I can write the history of the four days, and that's all. Wednesday. I gave the alarm toward noon. Hours before, I had put things straight and fit to be seen. I had only to call for help and to leave the people to do as they pleased. The neighbors came in, and then the police. They knocked uselessly at his door. Then they broke it open and found him dead in his bed. Not the ghost of a suspicion of me entered the mind of anyone. There was no fear of human justice finding me out. My one unutterable dread was dread of an avenging providence. I had a short sleep that night, and a dream in which I did the deed over again. For a time my mind was busy with thoughts of confessing to the police, and of giving myself up. If I had not belonged to a respectable family, I should have done it. From generation to generation there had been no stain on our good name. It would be death to my father, and disgrace to all my family, if I owned what I had done, and suffered for it on the public scaffold. I prayed to be guided, and I had a revelation toward morning of what to do. I was commanded, in a vision, to open the Bible, and vow on it to set my guilty self apart among my innocent fellow-creatures from that day forth, to live among them a separate and silent life to dedicate the use of my speech to the language of prayer only, offered up in the solitude of my own chamber, when no human ear could hear me. Alone, in the morning, I saw the vision, and vowed the vow. No human ear has heard me from that time. No human ear will hear me to the day of my death. Thursday. The people came to speak to me, as usual. They found me dumb. What had happened to me in the past, when my head had been hurt, and my speech affected by it, gave a likelier look to my dumbness than it might have borne in the case of another person. They took me back again to the hospital. The doctors were divided in opinion. Some said the shock of what had taken place in the house, coming on the back of the other shock, might, for all they knew, have done the mischief. And others said, she got her speech again after the accident, there has been no new injury since that time. The woman is shamming dumb, for some purpose of her own. I let them dispute it as they liked. 
all human talk was nothing now to me i had set myself apart among my fellow-creatures i had begun my separate and silent life through all this time the sense of a coming punishment hanging over me never left my mind i had nothing to dread from human justice the judgment of an avenging providence there was what i was waiting for friday they held the inquest he had been known for years past as an inveterate drunkard he had been seen overnight going home in liquor he had been found locked up in his room with the key inside the door and the latch of the window bolted also no fireplace was in this garret nothing was disturbed or altered nobody by human possibility could have got in the doctor reported that he had died of congestion of the lungs and the jury gave their verdict accordingly twelve saturday marked for ever in my calendar as the memorable day on which the judgment descended on me toward three o'clock in the afternoon in the broad sunlight under the cloudless sky with hundreds of innocent human creatures all around me i hester dethridge saw for the first time the appearance which is appointed to haunt me for the rest of my life i had had a terrible night my mind felt much as it had felt on the evening when i had gone to the play i went out to see what the air and the sunshine and the cool green of trees and grass would do for me the nearest place in which i could find what i wanted was the regent's park i went into one of the quiet walks in the middle of the park where the horses and carriages are not allowed to go and where old people can sun themselves and children play without danger i sat me down to rest on a bench among the children near me was a beautiful little boy playing with a brand new toy a horse and wagon while i was watching him busily plucking up the blades of grass and loading his wagon with them i felt for the first time what i have often and often felt since a creeping chill comes slowly over my flesh and then a suspicion of something hidden near me which would steal out and show itself if i looked that way there was a big tree hard by i looked toward the tree and waited to see the something hidden appear from behind it the thing stole out dark and shadowy in the pleasant sunlight at first i saw only the dim figure of a woman after a little it began to get plainer brightening from within outward brightening 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 till it set before me the vision of my own self repeated as if i was standing before a glass the double of myself looking at me with my own eyes i saw it move over the grass i saw it stop behind the beautiful little boy i saw it stand and listen as i had stood and listened at the dawn of morning for the chiming of the bell before the clock struck the hour when it heard the stroke it pointed down to the boy with my own hand and it said to me with my own voice kill him a time passed i don't know whether it was a minute or an hour the heavens and the earth disappeared from before me i saw nothing but the double of myself with the pointing hand i felt nothing but the longing to kill the boy then as it seemed the heavens and the earth rushed back upon me i saw the people near staring in surprise at me and wondering if i was in my right mind i got by main force to my feet i looked by main force away from the beautiful boy i escaped by main force from the sight of the thing back into the streets 
I can only describe the overpowering strength of the temptation that tried me in one way. It was like tearing the life out of me to tear myself from killing the boy. And what it was on this occasion it has been ever since. No remedy against it but in that torturing effort, and no quenching the after-agony but by solitude and prayer. The sense of a coming punishment had hung over me, and the punishment had come. I had waited for the judgment of an avenging providence, and the judgment was pronounced. With pious David I could now say, Thy fierce wrath goeth over me, thy terrors have cut me off. Arrived at that point in the narrative, Geoffrey looked up from the manuscript for the first time. Some sound outside the room had disturbed him. Was it a sound in the passage? He listened. There was an interval of silence. He looked back again at the confession, turning over the last leaves to count how much was left of it before it came to an end. After relating the circumstances under which the writer had returned to domestic service, the narrative was resumed no more. Its few remaining pages were occupied by a fragmentary journal. The brief entries referred to the various occasions on which Hester Dethridge had again and again seen the terrible apparition of herself, and had again and again resisted the homicidal frenzy roused in her by the hideous creation of her own distempered brain. In the effort which that resistance cost her lay the secret of her obstinate determination to insist on being freed from her work at certain times, and to make it a condition with any mistress who employed her that she should be privileged to sleep in a room of her own at night. Having counted the pages thus filled, Geoffrey turned back to the place at which he had left off, to read the manuscript through to the end. As his eyes rested on the first line, the noise in the passage, intermitted for a moment only, disturbed him again. This time there was no doubt of what the sound implied. He heard her hurried footsteps, he heard her dreadful cry. Hester Dethridge had woke in her chair in the parlour, and had discovered that the confession was no longer in her own hands. He put the manuscript into the breast-pocket of his coat. On this occasion his reading had been of some use to him. Needless to go on further with it. Needless to return to the Newgate calendar. The problem was solved. As he rose to his feet, his heavy face brightened slowly with a terrible smile. While the woman's confession was in his pocket, the woman herself was in his power. "'If she wants it back,' he said, "'she must get it on my terms.' With that resolution he opened the door, and met Hester Dethridge, face to face, in the passage. End of section 63